All right, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, we are here today to do a pick apart for the script Fire in My Heart, uh, which aired last week. We have two of the amazing actors. We have the wonderful Jay Stratton, cheers and applause and claps and snaps. And we have the brilliant Heidi Armbruster here and more claps and applause and more snaps. So welcome, Hello. welcome, welcome. It's so nice to be here, John, thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. So um, the first thing that I just want to say really quickly is that when Matthew did uh, his pick apart for George Atzerodt, he talked about politics and fascism and how history repeats itself. And um, I'm going to be talking about how we wrote um, a justification for murder, which I think says something. I'm not sure what. Um, I do think we should probably start off by saying that um, neither I nor the podcast, The Cruelest Month, endorses or encourages vigilanteism or violence in any way. It was just a comedy, I swear. <laughs> um, so the first thing that I kind of wanted to start with, um, because you guys are both amazing actors, um, the most famous love story in the world is, of course, Romeo and Juliet. And everybody talks about how wonderful it is they died for each other. And where, where is the line? What's so much creepier about saying, I'd die for you, than saying, I'd kill someone for you? Thoughts, well, anyone? <laughs> if you're looking for like a very ethical response, you have come to the wrong woman because Actually, truth be told, I've killed people. No, I haven't never killed anybody, but I'm a huge fan of the genre. Like I'm just a devoted murder mystery fan. And so I sometimes wonder too, sort of in that criminal podcast, true crime industrial complex, like sometimes where is the line between like how implicit is the audience when you start to enjoy murder, at what point are you implicit in the violence? And personally, I haven't gotten there yet because I literally can't go to sleep at night unless I'm listening to British people solve murders on like BritBox or Netflix. So I think I'm the wrong person. I haven't yet found that line in my own media consumption. I think in some ways, uh, the the Romeo and Juliet is such an interesting comparison, John, because in some ways, I'd die for you is sort of the first thing anyone ever says the first time they feel the chemical response of falling in love. And, and there's, it, we think of it as kind of altruistic, but I'm not sure, I think, I think I'd kill for you is maybe a little more altruistic because there are probably a lot more circumstances um, oh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like what you've written with a, a, a fire in the heart is actually a little more uh, mature and adult. I'm not saying, you know, it, it, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I liked it. I like the idea that this person was like, well, I love you so much that, that if somebody is in the way of your happiness, I have to get rid of them. You know, and it, it, I, I love that sort of storyline. I'm not saying I endorse it. 
Yes, I, we, none of us endorse violence, none of us endorse murder, but we culturally, I think both in the United States and around the world, we are culturally fascinated with murder. And I don't necessarily know why, um, but I also don't know why someone saying, I kill someone for you is somehow frowned upon. You know, there's, we always have those, you know, it's the first thing, you know, we say it to our partners, we say it to our children, we say it to our siblings, we say it to our best friends, you know, oh, I would take a bullet for you. You know, if it was between you and me, I would die. And I sort of think, well, but there's a third option there, which is disarm the person and just take them out. And then both of you are okay. Uh, It's just very strange to me that we are so obsessed with sacrificing ourselves as opposed to this sort of sacrifice of a third person who is violent or threatening in some way. There's also this fourth option where like, I think of my brothers specifically and literally I would kill for them, right? But also at times I would like to kill them. So like these relationships, and I think sometimes like within the family bond where you sort of feel epic love and epic hate for these kind of unbreakable relationships. Sometimes I think that sibling relationship sort of fits in there. Or maybe I'm giving too much away about my family. Anyway, that's a glimpse into the Armbruster family dynamic. But it's sort of interesting to feel like how slippery that is, like where epic feeling becomes you know, like love and hate, actually it's so far on the spectrum, it loops back around and they like touch each other. Or like, I love you so much, I want to eat you up. You know, that impulse you get when like meeting a baby for the first time, you just kind of want to put your teeth into it. Is that just me? I don't think so. I don't <laughs> no, know. No, Jay, I think you're... that's absolutely just you. Um, <laughs> nobody else wants to bite babies. <laughs> no, you don't want to bite I, babies? I totally buy that. It's really that thing of like, oh my God, I just, I love you so much. I want to consume you. I want to make you part of me. Yeah, that's a, that's like extreme love right there. I also think just to be clear, Oliver, who I had the pleasure of voicing is not presented as, um, like he is presented as an extreme version of something that we may all have felt, but not as a, a healthy version of it, right? Like, yeah, you know, we've all had that moment where somebody gets defined in some way as our enemy or perhaps the enemy of our partner or our loved one. And we kind of think, I wish something really bad would happen to that person. Well, Oliver goes one step further and is willing to take action, right? And that's where it's like, okay, that's that's beyond the pale because we need to live in society. But um You know, I think that's what's fun about him is it's like we see this thing in ourselves and then we expand it it, till till it gets big enough to take action. Yeah. And I think part of that, there were a couple of things that I I was sort of thinking. And first, first, actually, I want to thank you, Jay, because I got very nervous when I handed in this script because I thought it's so easy to make Oliver a really terrible and creepy person and have him feel like he's all the one in the, with the power in the relationship and that Harry is just sort of along for the ride when I don't think that at all. And you, I, 
the second I heard you read, I was like, oh, thank goodness. This is really, this actor is amazing because I don't have to worry that Oliver is coming across creepy. He just comes across very loving and very sweet. And um, so thank you for that. Oh, thank you. And thank you for writing such a, a, I mean, this is a person who doesn't perceive what he's doing as the wrong thing. Absolutely. Now, this actually brings me to an, an interesting point. I don't know how, I don't know how, you know, sort of non-art house movies people are, um, uh, but there is absolutely nothing that Oliver does or nothing that Dennis does in this script that has not been applauded in some other revenge film. Um, because to me, I was just writing the queer version of a revenge film is, is all it was, but there's nothing, you know, there's Death Wish, there's True Grit, there's Dirty Harry, there's Kill Bill, there's Game of Thrones, which is why that discussion about how to stab somebody was so um, was so long and, and probably a little too explicit. <laughs> and I probably should have cut a couple lines there. But, you know, did everybody else cheer when Arya slit Littlefinger's throat? Spoiler alert, in case you're not on Game of Thrones, but you probably have gotten to it. So spoiler alert warning in effect post, sorry. But, you know, we do cheer when bad things happen to bad people, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I don't think, I mean, well, Heidi, because you're, you're a big Game of Thrones fan. It's true. It's true, I am. And I cheered when Arya killed Littlefinger. And then I went back and watched The Wire, and I wish that somebody had slit Tommy Carcetti's throat, too, you know, because that actor. But, um, no, it was interesting. And I thought, too, what you said, Jay, like, Oliver doesn't perceive what he's doing as wrong. And, of course, that really slippery word perception. He doesn't perceive what he's doing is wrong because he feels that it is justified. And John is saying here now that justification is rooted in this idea of revenge and this tradition of these revenge fantasies and action picks. But like, it's interesting from us as the audience when you stand outside that perception and you're like, oh no, he's a sociopath. I perceive you as a sociopath. And like, what's kind of interesting here, like seeing you on the Zoom is you look so normal and lovely, both of you really in fact, but yet your imagination came up with this and your imagination like was able to embody this. And that idea that like sociopathology looks and feels very familiar to us until it doesn't and that like until it doesn't part I think is where like it becomes extra terrifying did I make any salient points yes absolutely and you actually amazingly and wonderfully as Olivia because you're not only outside of it you're a part of it because there's really there's two members in the family who are killers um, although I would argue that Oliver is not a sociopath just because I feel like he loves people so much. And, you know, I think the real definition of sociopathy, sociopathy did I say that right? I think I said that right. I clearly have no idea. Is it sociopathy? So, yeah, I don't know. Um, but a sociopath is really not capable of human emotion, is not capable of love. And I, I do believe that Oliver really loves Harry. I think he loves his children beyond words. 
Um, and I think he would certainly die for them, but that wouldn't be his first choice if he can take someone else out. Um, but did you, you know, so actually let me, sorry, let me circle back for a second. So Heidi, because you were sort of in and out of it, did you sort of think, oh yeah, this makes sense to me that I would never tell anyone that my brother is a murderer. Yeah, I don't think I would ever tell anyone if my brother was a murderer. I have two brothers. There might be two murderers out there and I would never tell. Like, I think there is something like, I really don't like just using my own sibling relationship, which we have a little information about now, but like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell a soul if it meant his life, you know, um, no, no, no. I would keep that a secret. I would take that to my grave. And I'm not saying that it would like, you know, I think in this case here, um, what's another good word? What's another word for it besides sociopath? Um, not psychopath, psychopaths still don't have that. It, it's almost like that, like empath meets psychopath, like where you love somebody so much that you're willing to do something that another human being might acknowledge as psychotic or violent, you know, or certainly outside the realm, you know, keeping a secret like that maybe is one of those things. And like in my sort of somewhat healthy um, approach to life, more so maybe than Olivia, the place where like the two of us differ is like that experience might eat me from the inside in a way that it doesn't seem to be taking a toll on Olivia, you know, um, or it might damage the relationship in a way that it doesn't seem to be uh, between the brother and the sister here. It seems if anything to have brought them closer and it seems to have the effect on the family here bringing the family closer. So that might be slightly different um, in the way that it worked with me differently than Olivia, but I can definitely buy a world where I would be justified in keeping that a secret if it would keep my brother safe. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, so not being an actor, Jay, I have a question for you. At any point where you like, you know what? Oliver kind of makes sense. I sort of agree with this. I don't know. I don't understand acting processes. It's all very foreign to me. Um, I barely understand human processes. Um, but <laughs> uh. but um, the last... Uh, for survivors, I essentially was trying to make an argument why someone would kill themselves. And here I'm trying to make an argument why someone would kill someone else, which says a, think a whole lot about me. But getting back to the original question, does Oliver have a point? Absolutely. 100% Oliver has a point. Um, the, only, the only thing that makes Oliver into an extreme character is the relative healthiness of the society he is operating in, right? If you think about his behavior in a refugee camp, his behavior during a time of war, his behavior, um, you know, of, of, of identifying people who are hurting those that he loves and removing them from the story in a less healthy social situation would be heroism. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah. And frankly, we're not on a historic scale. We're not really that far away from an eye for an eye. I mean, 
maybe what, 1500 years, which isn't a huge deal because you, know, you sort of think, well, the Bible was written probably a couple hundred years uh, AD. So we're probably looking at somewhere between 500 and 1000 AD. So, you know, 500 to 1000 years, it doesn't seem like it's that far removed. I don't know, am I making sense? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just a scary, scary person and I haven't realized it yet. No, I've been listening to Sapiens and um, I think you're right. <laughs> I think that human evolution has not, in terms of like the way we set up justice, you know, we're not far from that notion of eye for an eye. I might argue though, that like if Oliver is killing people, you know, for example, like, Cody, did Cody kill anyone or did he just torment? So I for the scale of eye for an eye is uh, there's an initial act of violence and then a greater act of violence that Oliver perpetrates, which isn't quite eye for an eye balanced. But what's his name? Hieronima? Was he the one? And he, um, that wasn't, I cannot believe that I sound like an idiot. If anybody is going to listen to this, they're going to be like, that woman is an idiot. But there, it was like Hieronymy or something. This all comes from Sapiens. But he just like, uh, he had this codified law. You know, he's the first dude. Somebody could Google this. I could Google this. And then I would know Hanurabi. what the name of, Hanurabi. Hanurabi's code. Is that what you Hanurabi's code. And it was like, oh, okay, if you slight this person, then this person dies because, but in addition to like creating crime and punishment, codifying crime and punishment, he also like put a value on certain people. So his was like class, but it seems like what Oliver's doing is putting a value on people based on where they are in his like inner circle, right? So he puts a higher value on his partner or higher value on his children than he does on the world at large. So in that case, if somebody slights his partner, torments his partner, bullies his partner, then he can turn around and kill that person. How's that for a justification? There you go. Every I don't know anyone who can get through the day without a few juicy justifications at some point about something. Juicy justification. There we go. That's our band name, Heidi. Um, <laughs> something, something sad, something that I should probably think about at some point making a band. Um, uh, so, uh, so Jay, you yes. have children, I have uh, one, child. one child. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about nature versus nurture. Why do you think, you know, what, what is, how did Dennis their, you know, Oliver and Harry's child. Um, and I, I have very specific thoughts on this that is, that I'll, I'll answer separately. So you don't have to hear my voice first, but what do you, you know, where do you think the, the journey of parenting and nature versus nurture is? Well, okay. In the case of Oliver and Dennis, my feeling was that was nurture, not nature. Uh, well, hang on. Let me, do I really believe that? Hang on. Do I really believe that? Uh, I think if I were Oliver and I were someone who had killed quite a few people. Only seven. Well, okay. Deal. Can we just call it a, a, a baker's half a dozen? There you go. Um, or half a baker's dozen. Uh, <laughs> and then I discovered that my son was starting to do some killing as well. 
experiment with killing. I think I would say, even, even though I kept my past a total secret, that I was somehow finding ways subconsciously to engender that in, 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 in my, in my kit. You get me? Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that would be my belief if I were, if, if, if I were actually Oliver and all, and I actually had a, you know, not a tiny child, but you know, Dennis is a, is a sort of becoming a young man mm-hmm. and experimenting with killing on his own. I would blame myself. I would say he is doing that because even though I've never told him I am, my, I am subconsciously laying that into his behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that I, I asked that question is I am actually adopted. And maybe about 10, 15 years ago, I met my biological brother. And we have a lot in common, sort of how we deal with things, what we look like, how we speak, how we you know, kind of talk to each other. Um, but at the same time, there are very much times when my, when I look at my parents, the people who raised me, my parents, and I just think, wow, I am completely my, my parents' child. Um, and it's so this, the nature versus nurture thing, you know, which was something that I wanted to touch on is just sort of fascinating to me. Um, and Heidi, do you feel like you were, you were a daddy's girl in the script and not a papa's girl? And that's why you ended up sort of being uh, not really, not the murderer, but the secret keeper? Not the murderer, but the secret keeper. That's exactly what I was gonna say. No, it does, it does feel that way. And then there's of course the name thing, which is sort of interesting to Oliver and Olivia, but then she's sort of not Papa so much as more of daddy side. I think that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. I think I, she grew up to be the secret keeper. And maybe that is something that's like engendered that you just pick up on, like you understand sort of in an implicit nonverbal way that loving someone means keeping their secrets, taking their secrets literally um, to the grave or, or to their grave. Oh, it's interesting. I like that idea. Yeah. That- um, and I do think you know, again, as I, cause I, because I've gotten older, my mother has passed and there are things that you sort of found out much later where I was like, the hell did you guys do when you were in your thirties? Do we keep secrets? Like why, why do we keep secrets from the people that we love the most and they're closest to? You know, we, we, there is this, again, al- along with sort of the romantic trope of, you know, I would die for you. There's also the romantic trope of, oh, this person knows everything about me. And yet sometimes we go, maybe I don't. Maybe I should have said something. Why do we keep secrets from the people that we love the most? Fascinating. Well, then this begs the question also, like what is the difference between a secret and a lie? You know, which I think is language that comes up in that final scene as well. Like you've been lying to us. It's like, no, I just didn't tell the complete truth. Like where does secret keeping become lying. And in some ways it's easier for me to imagine lying to my loved ones or like those little white lies or those therapeutic lies or the, you know, um, things that sort of make it easier on other people's feelings or um, make it easier to sort of get through Thanksgiving, like little not quite whole truth 
lies that sort of are part of just um, being polite or being kind or love. Do you know what I mean? There's certain ways that we sort of express affection and love, especially love our families. I think sometimes are sort of built on an infrastructure that has lies um, associated with it, you know, regardless of sort of what the intention behind those lies is. So is that love if it's not the truth? I don't know, what is the difference? Can you have real love without complete truth? I mean, I think we can because I think I do, but it's an interesting sort of ethical debate. Yeah. And I'm, I, I, you know, I, I hear you, Heidi, and I would be inclined to say that those little insignificant lies are, are really, I mean, that we call white lies. I don't know where that term came up from, but you know, those, oh yeah, it's great. You know, oh yeah, I, I, I love your improv show. It was terrific. You know, like who, who, who gives a, I don't know if we're allowed to swear here or not. You know, yes. it, they are so trivial. Well, yes, that they, just, they just serve to, to grease our relationship and keep things moving, right? But that is in a very different land of, I'm going to keep from you the secret that I have killed half a dozen people. Or I'm going to keep from you the secret that uh, I, 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 I committed arson or I'm, you know what I mean, something substantial. Uh, that, that to me is, a, um, and I don't know how you, where you draw that line between the, the trivial, the no big deal and the, hey, no, this matters. And I think at the end of the day, all those secrets to the, to the larger side, uh, all those secrets are about protecting self. Oh, that's I interesting. I don't think they're ever about protecting the other person. I think they are about protecting self. Mm -hmm. Very um, interesting. And this idea of a lubricant too, lies as lubricant. And then there's that whole, I mean, you get where they come up with slippery slope. Like at what point have you passed the point of the event horizon right. on lying? Like you give, you're, yeah, you, you tell somebody a lie like, uh, yeah, I love that outfit you have on today. That's, that's, that's just a, that, the only reason you're not telling the truth is because we all want to go on with our, the cost would be sort of like, it wouldn't be worth it. Not telling somebody, I smothered a, I smothered a hobo this weekend. <laughs> is that's, that's in a, a land of where like, I'm not telling you because I refuse to pay the real cost. You yeah. know, if I tell you this, you might leave me. So I'm not going to tell you the truth. You might leave me and tell the police. <laughs> That's interesting though, too. But now I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate, but could you not apply that same logic to those um, polite lies? Like, could you not say, like the reason that I said that I was sorry was to bring the argument to a close because I no longer wanted to be embroiled in an argument or receive your anger. So I said, you know what? I'm so sorry. Let's move on. I'll never do it again. But actually what I'm doing is sort of lubricating the path of the relationship in order to like keep things status quo. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of wanted to explore a little bit 
um, because everything that I write is completely on purpose and there's never any, um, any coincidences in anything that I write ever. Um, but one of the things uh, is, you know, the truth, there's a reason for the expression, the truth hurts. And sometimes, frankly, I think we just don't want it. I think Harry and I think Olivia would have been very fine going the rest of their lives without ever knowing that, you know, their other family members are, are serial killers. I don't think sociopathic and I don't think psychotic, um, but, you know, I do think that at times we have this idea that we want to have complete honesty in our relationships. And then when we do, we find out things that we really didn't want to know. You know, it's like, why do I have to suffer now with this secret just so that you could feel okay telling me about it? It's like having, you know, it's like having a long distance relationship with somebody and then someone cheats and, you know, something happens and someone cheats. And it's like, okay, I get it. You're telling me because you don't want to feel guilty anymore, but now you're making, now you've made me upset for your, so that you can feel better. Am I, a ter- I think I might just be a terrible person. No, because it was interesting because Jay said just the flip side of that, which is like, I'm not going to divulge that because I want to, you know, maintain the relationship. I don't want to risk losing you. And you're actually saying like, I didn't want to be told that thing because now I don't want to be upset. Like, I wish that you hadn't unburdened yourself in order to make yourself feel guilty. So there we have like both sides of the same issue. And so maybe we're just never supposed to do the bad thing, you know, or cheat in the first place, or maybe everybody needs to go back and look at why you're in this relationship to begin with. Do you know what I mean? It becomes like that the communicating about it and the truth and the lies are are sort of the symptom of um, the love itself. Yeah. Hmm. And there's, there, we also, we also touch on religion and how religion is, can be, um, I'm not going to get into a long conversation about religion or about, about this, but there is a, it's some discussion of how religion kind of represses some very human emotions in it. I mean, that the, this, the conversation that Oliver has with Harry about, you know, what if you pass and there's nothing beyond that? You know, if you changed that discussion from, uh, from, murder to sexuality from from murder to you know drinking or experimenting with you know a, a foreign substance you know we do give up a lot of things um in the hopes that there's going to be some reward later on but then <laughs> what happens if there's no reward and we've lost the chance to sort of have those earthly pleasures um, let's talk about earthly pleasures. <laughs> um, as it, and earthly pleasures as it relates to religion. There you go. There you I go. I mean, one of the interesting things is, does all, so Oliver would say, I'm only killing people who really deserve it and only when they've directly hurt or seriously endanger those that I love. But I think he is not being completely honest with himself. I think he also derives pleasure from the act of killing. Mm-hmm. And because he has a speech that alludes to that a little bit. 
You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Uh-huh. So I think that one of the things that you've created in this narrative is the idea that deep down, we're all curious what it would be like to take a life, right? And Oliver just goes that extra step and, and, and you know, and, and he says, I don't enjoy killing. I don't know that he's being totally honest with himself in the actual moment, judging by that one speech you wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, I could find it if you want, but you know which speech I'm talking about? Yeah, the one where he said, you know, what if you have this, you know, we've all felt this. Yeah, we've all felt this desire, right? Well, give yourself a chance to explore it once and see what it's like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Heidi's grinning and I'm sort of, I'm sort of afraid to, to just sort of ask that basic question of, have we all felt that? Have we all wondered you know, what it would be like to push someone off a cliff. And again, don't endorse it, but I would be, I would be lying if I said there weren't times when I, um, you know, when I'm at a pride parade and I see someone with a sign that, you know, you're going to hell, Jesus hates fags. There would be a time, pardon my language, I I'd be lying if I said there weren't times when I thought, wow, if I was Drew Barrymore and Firestarter, we would have one hell of a flame right now. Does that make me a bad person? I don't know, I've never acted upon it, never would, but does that make me a bad person? That's interesting. Well, Mr. Rogers says scary bad wishes never come true, but isn't it also nice that Drew Barrymore is there with that, you know, in so many of these, these stories, these revenge fantasies, the whole list, Kill Bill, Game of Thrones, like these modern fairy tales that are there to sort of give us that imaginative release. Like without that, maybe we would be, I mean, if in, on the one way religion is there to sort of control us and give us the promise of an afterlife so that we amend our behavior in a particular way so that, you know, we, whatever, don't kill our neighbor. I mean, in what way are stories there to give us release inside that control so that we don't need to follow that impulse because we have an imaginative space where we can watch that impulse followed to its, uh, you know, a satisfactory conclusion. Well, wow, that is an idea I've never articulated before. And it's sort of the very, the very definition of catharsis in a way, Catharsis! Right? Is it tragedy supposed to be the You know, like by by watching this act of violence being done, I release a small amount of something inside of myself and say, well, I have sort of lived that experience through my story, through this story I experienced, you know. Mm -hmm. There's something interesting because I think I've always associated the idea of catharsis with like Medea who eats her children or I don't think she eats them. She like bakes them in a kills. pie or kills them. Somebody else gets baked in a pie. Somebody else accidentally eats Titus. kids. Titus Andronicus. You guys, this is such an education for me. I'm so glad I came to do I, this conversation. Um, but like, I've always associated with these, you know, these dreadful women in togas crying a lot. And like, there's something quite gleeful, I think, John, about what you have written and about those other revenge, um, uh, you know, fantasy 
genre, you know, the, those ideas that are like gleeful and fun, like those action sequences are fun. Like I want to watch Uma Thurman take out all of those snow people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's joy and catharsis. Can, is that true? I think so. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of revenge films out there. And when um, in preparation for that, I didn't watch a lot of them, but I was watching a lot of, you know, the best revenge films and talking, you know, uh, you know, YouTube videos about, about that. Um, So I do think that we, as we culturally um, do get something out of, watching bad things happen to bad people, maybe because it doesn't happen always in real life. Um, maybe because we just wish it did. I think, I think we also get something out of watching bad things happen to good people too. Like, A little schadenfreude, never hurt anybody, I think. Yeah, I'm thinking about like, so strangely enough, uh, Heidi and I did a, did a production of the Duchess of Malfi years ago and in that a lot of bad things happen to a lot of bad people and a lot of really bad things happen to a lot of really good people and um you know it was just this kind of feast of misery (laughs) and you know people and it was very well directed and people really just dug seeing the kind of conveyor belt of of uh of horror Mm -hmm. I, um, so when I passed in this final version of the script to Matthew and Kelly, um, one of the things that we talked about was, uh, should we put a laugh track in this? Can we put a laugh track in this? Can you make something that's really terrible? Um, hopefully the script isn't terrible, um, but where really terrible acts are happening. Can you make that funny? Did that, and and when we did the table read, I think we talked about that at the end, sort of going, well, I, I did request a laugh track. Um, did that throw either of you off the idea of putting a laugh track in something where really awful things are happening? Uh, the, the first time I read the script, I thought it was very funny. Oh, thank you. I, I immediately accepted it as a, um, as a, Big, smart, and slightly, slightly ham-fisted, but deliberately ham-fisted comedy. So I think a laugh track makes perfect sense personally. Mm-hmm. Good, good. I'm yeah. It was I. It was I, I thought you know okay how do why first of all I thought why would someone burn Notre Dame, and secondly I thought how do I make this funny? Partially because the other scripts that we wrote were all really really heavy. And this was my attempt at comedy. Not sure that it completely worked 100%, but you guys liked it, so I'm happy. Um, but, you know, Heidi, you, you, you know, you do a lot of true crime stuff and a lot of the true crime podcasts mm-hmm. are comedies, you know, cocktail, martinis and murder, and my favorite murder and those types of things. Can, should we feel guilty? about laughing at this catharsis? Should we feel guilty about maybe not, not laughing at the people involved, but laughing at what has happened? I, you know, it's like we all, 
you know, what is comedy? Comedy is tragedy plus time or something. Mm. You know, someone slips on a banana peel and breaks their arm. It's funny. It's not funny, but someone else falls on a banana peel and breaks their arm. It's funny. You know, where is this discomfort? You know, why do we, why, why do we feel uncomfortable laughing at things when that is our natural impulse? And again, going back to why do we repress things? Yeah. Well, the first part of the question, do I feel the laugh track is out of place in this particular? No, I think it adds this layer of commentary, right? So you have both layers of commentary happening simultaneously. Is murder ever justified? And also is murder funny? And then by extension, can murder be entertainment? And what does that say about you as an audience member when you lean forward and are entertained by murder? When you consume all of the podcasts that you just named and then like go and adapt and write your own, you know, murder mysteries. Like this is, this is, this is my like central question. And to be honest, like it's a question that fuels me as a consumer of entertainment and also as an artist. And I do not know the answer to it. All I know is that if I'm listening to one of those podcasts, I can stay on the treadmill for longer than I would with just HGTV. (laughs) And so it becomes like, do you know, like there's something about it that I'm consuming. And I don't know if it's incredible high stakes and, and so often in, you know, for example, like a, you know, an Agatha Christie murder mystery or whatever, like the bad people are punished, the good people fall in love and get to go on being happily ever after. And, but most importantly, the stakes are um, life and death and the chaos is reordered. So you have that incredible experience of putting yourself into a situation that is as disordered as our lives are, and then coming up out of it with order. So again, it's that catharsis, right? Putting yourself in the experience where you feel off balance or chaotic, and then knowing that you'll come away from the ending of that book with a sense that like, uh, you know, order has been restored. So I don't know. I mean, I think again, cathartic, like women sit around and watch, what is it? ITV or IG Discovery? ID Discovery. Yeah. Yeah. And like watch other women victimized at incredible rates. And what is the catharsis there in terms of seeing it happen to somebody that's not you? Like, I think the other thing, like if tragedy is comedy plus time, like, no, comedy is tragedy plus time. Like is comedy all or voyeurism plus distance? Like it's not happening to us. And so it's entertainment. Like we can... If it's happening to somebody else, then um, I want to listen to it while I'm on the treadmill. But if it's happening to me, I want to run screaming. I don't, I don't, I do not know the answer, but I'll tell you, I think about this question a lot. That makes sense. Um, So um, I just, I, I do have a question for you guys, which is, do you have when you read this, did you ever think like, okay, I have to ask this dude why he did this? Um, And I will say this with one caveat, which is the one longer speech that was not rewritten or retouched in any way was that speech where Oliver says, you know, we all want to. That was, that came out, got typed onto a computer and we didn't change a word in that. Um, but did you, 
I don't know why that just occurred to me, but did you guys have any questions where you're reading this and you thought, okay, I, I don't, I need to ask why this or why that, or what is your, what is your point here, you know, with this particular moment or this particular, you know, this particular piece, because it's three scenes and they're all kind of, they, you know, when they're read together, they sort of seem to have the same flow, but they're actually quite different, um, you know, and they get hammier and hammier as time goes by um, because you can't, you can't get to that until normally in a sitcom, you can't get to human emotion until you've gone through four seasons of hammy and then you can actually have a big fight and it, there's an emotional weight to it. And we, and we just reverse this. I'm talking and I mean to be asking questions. <laughs> so is there anything that you guys were like, let me ask? No, I'm glad that you're talking because these are the questions I think that I would ask. Like there was not a part of me that read it and was like, oh, this guy's really screwed up. It was more like, I wonder what this comes from. And even as you're talking now, like um, how do you take the burning of Notre Dame and find a way to make it funny? Is murder ever justified? What does it mean about us? Um, that we add a laugh track to something like this and it feels satisfying in some way. So I think my questions are for you are really just like where it comes from, what the experience was and, um, you know, just some light reassurance that you've never actually killed someone. I, I never have. Um, I've only been in like two fights in my life, um, two fist fights. One was like third grade or something like that. And one was many, many years later. Um, but I think it, um, I started with why would someone burn Notre Dame? And I thought, oh, as a queer person, I know why someone would burn a church. Um, don't advocate it, but I understand why, because I think that there is a disconnect. Um, there is a stranglehold that religion, organized religion has on the idea of what morality is. Um, and I'm pretty sure that there is a heaven and I'm pretty sure that if I ever get there, God's gonna be up there going, I didn't mean any of that. I don't know where those people got that interpretation, but that was not what I meant. Um, but the, the second thing is I, I like to explore dark places and I wonder why we don't, I think when you repress that, it comes out in highly inappropriate and uncomfortable ways for everybody when you're not capable of admitting that you're capable of bad things, that's where bad things come from. Hmm. Um, that scares me. Like if someone were to say to me, no, I could never hurt somebody. That scares me a hell of a lot more than, than meeting somebody who says, oh, I could totally off someone if I had to. I don't know what that says about me. Am I wrong? I mean, do, have you guys, either of you ever been felt that? No, I think you're right. I think, I think that's up. I think, I think the person who seems to say, oh, I could never do that. Uh, my response to that person is almost always, really? Maybe it's more useful to think under what circumstances might I do that? Mm -hmm. And you know, use that to build a, a little empathy. I will say, I did not, when I read this, I did not think to myself, oh, this, is, this author is a problematic mind. This is a creative, this is creative, right? Um, you know, I, um, you know, you could, you could go to a, a, any movie theater right now, if you're, you know, if you're vaccinated, I guess, and see a half a dozen horror films that, you know, are, are going to be 
over-the-top blood and visceral, visceral torture and killing and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And nobody ever pins those writers down and says, what's wrong with you, right? They're just going, man, I thought this would be great fun, right? And as long as it stays fiction, it is great fun in my opinion, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and I think this is great fun. I think this is, you know, and, and there's certainly an exploration of like under what circumstances might a person take a life, but it's also funny, right? It's not, um, it, 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 nowhere in here did I read this and think this author is advocating murder <laughs> in the real world. You know, I ne- that never a- occurred to me. That That is very good to hear. Good to know that, you know, the, the therapy I had years ago is still working. Um, I will say the one one thing that I wanted to specifically do was queer people aren't allowed to have revenge. And when they're allowed to have revenge, it's never in a physical way. It's because they're more, it's because 20 years later, they're allowed to grow up and suddenly have six pack abs and be successful and make a lot of money. And then their old high school bully realizes that they're gay and they come out and then the two of them end up happily ever after. And it makes me so angry when I see that because I think- revenge, that's- just sort of saying, oh, in spite of my suffering, I was I led a fulfilled life. Yeah, and it's so it's one of those things where I think I, if someone who you know used to, you know, punch me in high school ever came to me and was like, you know what, John, I realized, you know, I I don't I, I don't think my first thought would be oh let's make out now, which is generally where I think sort of those things go. But I don't. There's no. There's no. There's maybe a Gregoraki film called The Living End from the early 90s where there's sort of some, you know, physical uh, attack when, you know, queer people are violated. But other than that, there wasn't anything that I could think of. And I did want to explore that a bit as well and talk about why don't, why don't queer people get to be physical mm. and powerful and strong in every way that's not just emotional. Um, so thank so... you guys for letting me explore that too. Gosh, John, that's so fat. Cause I'm thinking now and I'm thinking about all of the movies that you're referencing and it's always like, oh, there's the queer person who looks fabulous on the red carpet. And like you're allowed that, you know, the, the queer character is allowed to take up space in like a visual way, but not in a physical way. And like what you were saying about strength, physical strength, I think so often in all of these stories and fairy tales that we're talking about, it is rendered as violence. Um, but to see violence perpetrated by a queer character as opposed to seeing that character on the receiving end or being victimized by that violence is so such a powerful idea. And I feel like, you know, like Kill Bill becomes sort of appropriate in that it sort of flips the script on female characters, but oh my God, why does Marvel not have a gay superhero? Like, there's just so many questions here where I'm like, we're so lagging so far behind in terms of queer representation and and particularly around this issue of violence. Oh my God, make a movie. Um, I, so- just did, I just did a Google search for gay Marvel superheroes. And there apparently are some. I don't actually consume a whole lot of Marvel-like literature, but like apparently 
There are a lot. There, there um, are. It, none of them will ever. Yeah, none of them will ever have a starring role simply because box office wise, the movies won't ever play in China, Russia, or in certain U.S. markets. And so, um, love you, Marvel. Going to call you out on something here. When those characters appear, when their queerness is evident, it will it will be in ways that can easily be cut out and removed for those other markets. Mm. It's, it's it's all about it's all about money. International uh, box office. That's fascinating. Ugh. Um, I'm, I'm I'm sitting here right now trying to think of movies I have seen where there in a, there is an evidently gay male character that is also very physically dangerous or you know what i mean is a is a is game a, of uh, thrones i'm thinking of oh gosh what's his name who gets in the ring with the mountain uh well there's renly and loris true uh, i believe you're talking about is he's oh, the, the, he's a lovely pascal. actor the yeah yeah pedro pascal pedro, yeah exactly pedro pascal um yeah he does lose that fight right but that, I mean, losing one fight, I don't think is, you know, undo, uh, that you, what you're saying is still true. Yeah, I think how I was looking at it, there's movies, you know, where, uh, you know, there's like the fan where um, it's a, a character who's coded as queer, who's completely obsessed with this Hollywood actress and kills people dressed up as her. And then there's... Uh, or that was the one I think with the therapist who dressed as up like a woman and then killed, dressed to kill. That's the other one where the therapist dresses up like the woman. Um, and then there's, you know, there's all sorts of things where, you know, um, uh, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fool, you know, some character, the main character, the hero of the piece. It's like, oh, I'm gonna fool you into getting into bed with a man and I'm gonna take a picture and that's gonna take away your power because there's something shameful about being queer and that's like you know cruel intentions and it's even in it's like in the first or second episode of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina where that happens but I just felt like there wasn't something where where a queer person is allowed to say to someone you can't call me that you cannot victimize me and I'm going to be okay with it and my revenge is gonna come, you know, in the form of being successful and exciting years later in my life. There's nowhere where someone says, um, no, this, this stops now and it stops violently and you don't get to do that to someone else. Right, right. My, my revenge is in fact going to be to whoop your ass. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of a, um, I can't think of, I can't, I mean, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I can't think of it. Yeah, there's nothing that I can think of either. I mean, it's really only been since the late 70s that women have been allowed to, to be physically powerful in, in larger, you know, larger culture. Um, but again, maybe, uh, well, anyway, something to think about the next time we all get together and chat murder. <laughs> um, but uh, so I do want to thank you guys both for being here, uh, Jay and Heidi. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for um, thank you for your amazing work on the script. Oh, hi, little pumpkin. Hi. We're saying hi to a baby. You're telling me that it's time to trade off childcare. There you hi, go. Tiny nature versus nurture experiment. Know, really. <laughs> um, 
but thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you for your amazing performances. Um, and uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Cruelest Month. Uh, next week, I don't know whether we release a Comics Corner next week or whether we release Heidi and Nora Don't Know Things, um, but I will say I am already planning my next episode of Heidi and Nora Don't Know Things. So thank you for joining us. Uh, please be safe. And, uh, you know, just remember, April is the cruelest month. Thank you.